Thank you, uh, Timothy Gartnesh. Welcome to this character building first Holberg debate lecture. Great pleasure um, to be here. It's wonderful to have you here. Uh, we've now gotten uh, flattering introductions. Mine was way too flattering. Uh, yours was way too short. Um, I wondered if we could just start off, because I think here in the audience you will have a number of, of avid fans, I'm pretty sure, but you will also have someone who's not as familiar with your work. So maybe you could just give us a brief outline of all the work you did before you uh, reach the point of, of, of the sort of project that's underlying your book and that we will get back to, which is called the Free Speech Debate, uh, which also has it on its own website, and you can get back to that. But, but you have sort of been just present at the creation of a lot of European history, and you've written about it along the way. Could you uh, uh, give us the part of, of, of that history that works towards this book? In terms of what I did before I came to the subject, um, I have always identified myself as an English European, which some of you will understand in the context of Brexit is uh, <laughs> not so usual these days. And all my work up to this point was about the liberation of Central and Eastern Europe. So I initially went to live in Berlin. I lived behind the Berlin Wall in East Berlin. The Stasi compiled a file on me, which became the subject of one of my books. Um, I was then able, I had the great good fortune to chronicle the liberation of Eastern Europe from the late 1970s I knew all the leaders of the Solidarity Movement, Václav Havel, the dissidents in East Central Europe, the great year of 1989, which, by the way, has a lot to do with our subject, free speech. And then the, what I still like to call the reunification of Europe. That's to say the way in which we brought in these new democracies of Eastern Europe into the European family, into the European Union, into NATO, into the broader community. And, you know, given the sort of dismay around Europe these days, it's important to remember what an amazing achievement this has been. If you had told, told anyone, even in January 1989, that you could be free to travel from Lisbon to Estonia and from Finland to Greece, and you'd still be in liberal democracies and still be in part of the European Union, they wouldn't have believed it. So, so my personal experience of censorship, of the importance of free speech in Eastern Europe behind the Iron Curtain certainly had something to do with it. I still have hanging on my toilet wall in Oxford a Polish censor's verdict uh, of uh, censoring one of my articles about Poland in 1989. Um, but actually the, the immediate background to this book comes after the great reunification of Europe, the enlargement of the EU in 2004, and I sat down and I said to myself, so what's your next big project? And then I said to myself, so what have been the subjects of your working life so far? And the answer was Europe and freedom. And the greatest moments were when Europe and freedom marched together as they did in 1989. And then I said to myself, so, so which one of those do you want to write a big book about? Uh, fortunately, I plumped for freedom. Because imagine a book written in the optimistic spirit of 2004, 2005 about Europe. 
uh, with new disasters now unfolding every day. I'd have had to rewrite it every month. <laughs> um, but the reason I so chose that is, of course, that Europe, the European project, is ultimately a means to a higher end. Freedom is a first order value. Europe is a means to ends like freedom and peace and human rights. And then I thought, what about freedom, free speech? And then I thought, what about free speech? And then I looked at it and started reading around the subject. And I realized that we were in an extraordinary moment where the basic principles informing free speech were ones most of which Ludwig Holberg would absolutely have recognized, some of them going back 2,500 years to ancient Athens. But the circumstances in which we are exercising freedom of speech and freedom of information have changed completely because we now live in what I call a world of neighbors. Tendentially, everybody is becoming neighbors with everybody else. If you have, and I bet all of you have in your pocket, one of those, who doesn't have one of those? Anyone, put up your hands. Does anyone not have one of those in your pocket or handbag? Phew. I can't see the hands because of the <laughs> searchlights, but it's very few. One person, magnificent, holding out. Yeah, I'm meeting this other one uh, <laughs> later on, and he said I, he couldn't reach me by the, by the internet because are. he didn't well, have that kind of a phone. It's magnificent to have an individualist <laughs> holding out, but through the magic box, you are in principle immediately connected with half of humankind. About three billion people now have a smartphone or internet connection. We've never been in a world like that before. Uh, a world which as a result of the internet and mass migration, because that's the other part, means that we are all becoming neighbors. If you ring in, if live in a big city like London, you have people from every country, every faith, every language, every culture, and what you say in London on the smartphone can be seen and heard across the world. That is an amazing opportunity for free speech, unprecedented. It's also a huge danger because it also means that someone posts a video called Innocence of Muslims in California and people die in riots in Pakistan and Afghanistan. A death sentence, a fatwa is spoken in Raqqa or Tehran and someone dies in Berlin or Paris, like the journalists of Charlie Hebdo. So the book, the whole project, is fundamentally about how do we make the most of that unprecedented opportunity, but also what do we do about all the unprecedented dangers? There's some criticism uh, towards the uh, sort of foundations for the way we think about free speech today is that it's, it's Eurocentric or at least Western-centric, with a with firm foundation, of course, of the United States. Uh, is part of your project to sort of try and lift that out of, of this context, not to impose it on the rest of the world, but to see how it actually works in the rest of the world? Absolutely. So, I mean, the book, you know, is written very consciously as an English-European liberal. And the question for us Europeans and liberals is, how do you engage with an increasingly post-Western and non-liberal or even anti-liberal world? Right, one in which India and Russia and China and Brazil are as important in setting the agenda of global affairs as America or Europe. We can no longer go out 
as we did in the 1990s, and particularly as the United States did in the 1990s, but frankly the European Union too, and say, hey world, we've worked it all out. We've got the Enlightenment package, just go off to Ikea, and if you can understand the instructions, you can put it together. I, 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 I caricature slightly, but that was pretty much the spirit of liberal triumphalism, of which, by the way, I was a part in the 1990s. Now, number one, Indians, Russians, Chinese, Brazilians are no longer ready for that. They're no longer ready for a white Western middle-aged man to come and tell them what should be the rules of free speech. Uh, so if you want to uh, make the argument for liberal values, you have to make it in a more genuinely universal way which is what the project is about and the book is about. It's a quest for a more universal universalism, not just a Western universalism. Number two, actually, you know what? They have a lot to say about free speech, too. And if you go and read Confucius or the Indian Emperor Ashoka or Kautilya or even some, some thinkers from the Islamic world, they have very, and Buddhists, too, the idea of right speech, they have very interesting things to say about right speech. I've traveled all over the world with this project. We have a website in 13 languages. My experience is if you start the conversation in that slightly more modest, culturally modest and open way, it transforms the conversation in India or China and Russia. People open up in ways they absolutely wouldn't if you came and told them, go and buy the kit from Ikea. Tell us a little bit about, more, more about the, uh, the website. You say it has a number of languages, but it also seems to be uh, sort of uh, like your book, really, uh, sort of the, uh, a work in progress. Well, that's exactly it. So, so it's an experiment. And um, what happened is I, I, I spent most of my life at Oxford, but a, a, a bit of it at every year at Stanford, which is in the middle of Silicon Valley. And so I, there I was sitting in... Uh, Silicon Valley um, writing a book about what I call the post-Gutenberg world, right? The world beyond the Gutenberg printed page. But writing it in the old-fashioned Gutenberg way. I was going to write a printed page. And I suddenly thought, this is crazy. If you're writing about the post-Gutenberg world, do it in a post-Gutenberg way. So, for my sins, I set off on this crazy project which we've done out of Oxford for the last six years, which has been exhausting, draining, expensive, but utterly fascinating, in which we lay out online a series of 10 draft principles for global free speech, covering all the key areas like religion, privacy, secrecy and national security, journalism and the media, religion and so on. We do this in 13 languages, Arabic, Urdu, Hindi, Farsi, German, French, you name them, and mainly the biggest world languages. And then we go out there to invite feedback, contributions, examples, case studies from all over the world. And what you have in the book is a version of the principles in the argument revised in the light of this genuinely global and transcultural conversation. 
how many, if you look at the, the classic libraries, the classic books on free speech, how many examples do you find from Russia or China or Brazil or India? Almost none. It's almost overwhelmingly Western. Here we have examples from those countries which are often incredibly interesting because actually the front line in the global struggle for free speech is not here in Europe and certainly not in the United States. It's in what I call the swing states for free speech. It's in countries like India and Brazil and South Africa. Um, and so that's, that's the spirit of, of, of the project. And then I go to these places to, to, to try and talk about it. This is one of the things I find fascinating about this book. Uh, it may be just because of my ignorance, but, but what I've read of free speech stuff is, is very much focused on, on Europe or the United States. And even the, the examples mentioned are, are usually from, from those two uh, regions. Whereas in your book, uh, not only do you go in depth on some very different regions, such as China for me was, was very, uh, very much uh, unknown land, uh, but you also you gather examples from all sorts of other places in the world. Um, w does it does it translate as easily as it looks in the book? Because I recognize all the sort of basic thoughts, uh, but but do they? How, how do that work out? I mean, this is uh, as you say, it, it's a work in progress. It's a, it's a, um, uh, you, you're inviting people to disagree with your principles on the, in a recent matter, uh, but but how does that work when you travel around and try and and uh, convey these principles in these very different spheres. So one of the interesting things about the internet is that um, in a way political frontiers are transcended, but linguistic barriers, linguistic frontiers are still incredibly strong. So all English speakers of the world are united on English language Wikipedia, right? All German speakers on German language Wikipedia. I mean, you might say Kartoffel or Erdapfel and have a little argument about that, but they're united. Portuguese speakers uh, in Portugal and in Brazil, uh, again, they have their own arguments about particular words. I call them the wiki nations, the, the, the English wiki nation and the Portuguese wiki nation. But the linguistic barriers are incredibly resistant, including on Wikipedia. There's an amazing lack of overlap, even between English and German Wikipedia, let alone German and Chinese. Um, so the very exercise of trying to translate into 12 other languages, stripped down to essentials, basic, as it were, rules of the road for free speech, is incredibly demanding. Um, let me give you an example. Our principle on religion, and religion is obviously a, a hugely you know, contested subject, particularly in Europe, is we respect the believer, but not necessarily the content of the belief. And we can talk about it in, 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 the, in the conversation, because I think for a country like Norway or Britain, it's absolutely essential to hold that line. We respect the person of the believer, the Muslim or the Hindu or the Christian, but not necessarily the content of the belief. We must be free, heritage of the Enlightenment, to challenge the content of the belief with what I call robust civility. Okay, now you try to translate that into Turkish or Arabic or Urdu or Farsi. What do you find? That it's very difficult to find a generic word for the believer, right? The generic believer. Because in these languages, 
the usual word for the believer means a believer in Islam. It's actually what we had in the 17th and 18th century when the believer was a believer in Christianity and the others were the infidels. And so in the very act of translation, you find how difficult that is. That's already very illuminating. In terms of the reception, one of the great sort of takeaways of this project is if you lay out the issues across the piece, all the big relevant areas, you find that 70 to 80 percent of the concerns are common. Wherever I go, people are concerned about privacy. They're concerned about anonymity. They're concerned about um, closing down free speech in the name of national security. There are lots of concerns about how we speak to each other, how you preserve robust civility. There's a whole you know, raft of common concerns. If you read our press, you would think the only debate about free speech in the Islamic world is about religion. No, there are all these other issues. So then we can see the big areas on which we agree and then the very important ones on which we don't. And that's already very illuminating. And then, of course, you home in on the ones where we don't agree. Uh, one of the pressing issues that also relate to this is the uh, question of hate speech. And hate speech you can have, obviously, against religious minorities. And you can react to them through banning them with laws, or you can counteract to them with speech, as, as, as you uh, recommend in your book. So, and, and this is sort of a pressing issue in, in all of Europe right now, where we have very different laws, uh, and where our, uh, our uh, supranational or regional arrangements also direct very different, sort of not very principled ways of, of looking at speech. But that's sort of the one side, the, 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 the very offensive or hateful speech on, on the one side. But then you also have a tendency, which is not perhaps hate speech, but with, which is talking to some of the same kinds of emotion, which is, a, is the rise of, of populist speech, where you, make, where you simplify things, you blame uh, all societal problems on one group or, uh, or uh, one uh, institution going on, whether it's the EU or something else. Uh, what are the connections between these phenomena and how do we go about trying to think about them on the, on the, uh, on the one hand and, and to combat them on the other? So, I mean, this is, I think they're actually, in a sense, two separate subjects there. Um, this is a huge concern because, as I said, the Internet, fantastic, unprecedented chance, unprecedented risk. And part of the risk is that there is just so much hate and abuse and uh, stupidity and insult uh, flowing across the internet. I, I say in the book, the internet is history's largest sewer. And there are, there are literally, if you'll forgive my language, shit tides of this stuff, just waiting to come out of that, that box in your pocket and to jump out at you. And, um, and, and, and the question is, what, what do we do about this absolute explosion of hate speech in the broadest sense. And too often, I think, in Europe, we immediately look to the state, to the law, to the courts, to the police to address it. For me, the prior question is, what do we want to do by law? What do we want to do by ourselves in civil society, in the media, through NGOs, through counter speech? 
And my basic liberal principle is, in a free society, we try to do as much as possible ourselves in a realm of freedom in civil society and only the minimum necessary by law, right? Um, uh, now, so what's the minimum necessary, particularly in that context where even the minimum is just a huge amount of speech? I, I mean, the state is totally incapable, has not the capacity to regulate the whole shit tides. You know, it has to concentrate. My argument is the law should concentrate on a narrower category, which I call dangerous speech. That is to say, speech which directly, very directly, but also somewhat less directly, this is important, will lead to actual violence, physical harm, or serious psychological harm. Uh, this goes slightly beyond the classic position of only direct incitement to likely imminent and intended violence, because I recognize that on the internet, you can have kinds of incitement which are against groups. You know, the, 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 the Bosniaks are cockroaches. The, the, the Tutsi are cockroaches, and you have that repeated and repeated and repeated, and eventually it becomes dangerous. I think the state has its work cut out going after dangerous speech. The rest of it, I think we have to find ways of countering it, and we're just at the beginning. When I say we, I mean, I mean us, the citizens and netizens. I mean Facebook and Twitter and Google. That's a very important part, what I call the private superpowers. I mean established media, I mean NGOs. All of us have to work out how we, how, we, how we counter this stuff. And very often, last point on this, on the hate speech side, I think the laws, too restrictive laws, are counterproductive. Can I tell you a, a story that I, I found out in the court of my research and, and tell in the book? Please. There's a French, now academic, uh, but then school teacher called Marc-Antoine Dillac. And he told me the following story. He was teaching at a, at a secondary school in provincial France. And he was teaching them about Auschwitz. And suddenly he heard from the back of the class, they used the gas ovens to get a suntan, you know. And this stupid, stupid joke. And he turned around, and he was furious, and he tore him off a strip and said, shut up. And then the next day, he came back to the class and he said, look, I, I regret my reaction to this. I actually want to talk to you about it. I want to talk to you about why you think that was even an impossible thing to say. And the kids said, no, sir, we can't do that because you'll have to report us to the headmaster and then we'll be in court because there are laws against this. And so then Marc-Antoine said, no, I assure you, it's inside these four walls. It will go no further. Let's have an honest conversation about it. And he got them to talk about why, why they resented what they saw as the privileging of the Holocaust over the suffering of other minorities, why they felt it appropriate, etc., etc. And finally, at the end of the lesson, they said, thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much. We're really glad that someone talked to us about this, and now we understand why that was a really stupid and horrible joke, and we're not going to do it again. That, for me, is a classic, a beautiful example of where free speech 
in what I call robust civility is a better way to talk about our differences than trying to suppress that entirely by law and bringing, always bringing in the police. I know Norway has a new hate speech strategy, so maybe we could talk about it in that connection. I was just uh, wondering what you said, because, I mean, I, I love this example, but, but how do we make those classrooms, I mean, uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in other places? How do we make those public spheres that allows for that kind of counter speech? Because it seems to me that the development in, in the in IRL, the real world, which is not the IRL because it's on, online all the time, but um, it, it, there's a tendency to, uh, to to bubbling that are not working like classrooms like that, but are working more like echo chambers. So, by the way, the, I love your thing about the real world. I, I, have you noticed how, I don't know if people do this in Norway, but um, sometimes when you're having a conversation about something and, and there's a difficult issue, they say, okay, we'll take that offline as if online was the real world <laughs> and offline was the unreal. It's a very curious usage. Um, but um, you are so right, and this is, I hope we'll get a chance in the panel to talk about this more, because this is a huge issue in the world of populism, the world of Donald Trump and Brexit and the Kaczynskis and Herd Wilders and, as I've learned, the Progress Party, um, which is that these populist narratives often highly mendacious narratives are becoming so powerful because of the increasingly strong echo chamber effect in our media, which by the way is a product of the opportunities offered by the internet. Because you have so many different platforms, everyone can find their own like-minded people, Anders Bering Breivik being an extreme example of that. But the Trump voters find only Fox News, and Rush Limbaugh talk radio and their friends on Facebook and the Clinton voters find only MSNBC, NPR, PBS, the New York Times, their friends on Facebook. So if we have a world in which in early childhood we inevitably live in an echo chamber, because let's be honest, most childhoods are an echo chamber. Even in the best and most diverse and open houses, we live in a certain world. And then at the age of 22, you're going back into an echo chamber because you're getting your information from these media. The responsibility on schools and universities is absolutely enormous because those are the 10 or 15 years in which we can do something about confronting you in a, in a civilized context with the diversity of views and attitudes which is actually out there. So I think there's a huge responsibility on schools and on universities, which is why I'm as unhappy about what's happening in our universities. Safe spaces, no platforming, ban Germaine Greer from a British university, as I am unhappy about uh, over-the-top hate speech laws. What is the, where's the line between the, the sort of negative uh, effects of, of trigger warning, safe spaces, that kind of tendencies at, at some of our universities, and the robust civility or the civilized conversation that makes, that enables actual argumentation about over these issues. Where, how, how do you sort of uh, balance those two against each other? Because I, I, I totally agree with you, but it seems that the way that you can have that work the, in schools, in universities, to have people being civilized through debate, through disagreements, is by having such a civilized debate that sort of allows for that kind of exchange. Uh, exactly. So, so the question is how you do it. So 
a leitmotif, a leitmotif of this book is the phrase robust civility. And if you only take away one phrase, robust civility, uh, which is what we should be aiming for in all our interactions, uh, domestically, nationally, internationally. Um, and the, the reason you have the adjective and the noun is that civility tends to say too little. It's tea with the Archbishop of Canterbury. And how <laughs> nice to see you, Archbishop. And um, what do you think of the unconventional Mr. Trump? And, you know, this sort of thing. So you don't talk about it, which, 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 which you know, for example, in Germany, a country I know well, I, I think one of the reasons Tilo Sarrazin's really terrible book, lousy, rotten, stinking book, uh, sold 1.3 million copies, is that there were a lot of people who felt that the media, the public sphere, was not addressing these issues. So was Sagmannlich. And then suddenly it explodes in this hideous way. So it actually was a failing of too much civility. Too robust, and we start punching each other on the nose. So it's, uh, it's that balance where you manage to talk about everything, including the most difficult issues. Muslims and their difficulties with, with the liberal society, sexual orientation and Christian attitudes to homosexuality, you name it, down the list of difficult issues, but always looking for this robust civility. How do you do it? I, I mentioned in the book a fantastic um, experiment that's been done in some English uh, schools. Uh, it's called constructive controversy. So you find a controversial topic, then you work out who thinks what about it, and then you say, okay, Mary, you make the case for, and, um, you know, Hussein, you make the case against, and then you say, now you've got to swap, hmm. and you've got to make the case from the other side. And I've seen it in action. It's spectacular. You literally put yourself in the other person's skin, and you can see their eyes, enlightenment, literally in front of your eyes. So techniques, you know, pedagogical techniques like that, I think is precisely the kind of thing we need to be working on. That's great. It's one, a class like that, an, an experiment like that, was exactly what made me study law in the first place, actually, because I had to take on these different roles. And what, I, what was the argument you had to make that was so... Uh, it, w it was uh, a, a sort of a moot court competition between ideologies, and I first had to argue uh, against liberalism and then socialism, communism, or something rather... Um, so having to argue the other side was kind of, um, it's a good experience, yes. Um, well, uh, thank you. But so that sort of makes the case for why in schools and in universities in particular, these are, uh, these are disturbing or, uh, or, or dangerous even trends that, you, that you're trying to shield from that uh, training in robust civility. Uh, in the place where you could actually train for it, because you're then going out into the real world, online or else, uh, and, and, and you need to have sort of worked up, up that culture of, of being able to disagree and, in a and, civilized way. And simply encountering very different views. You know, so we had Marine Le Pen to talk at Oxford, and there was a protest outside. That's fine. Great. You know, what would universities be without protests? We want protests, but, but at least she could be heard. And, um, you know, I would like to see Donald Trump coming to the Oxford Union. Well, I'm sure we'd tear him apart. 
Um, uh, but, 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 but don't close these voices down. Now, I actually have, I'd love to hear some voices from, from, from the Norwegian experience. I have long, long conversations with my students about this. And they say really strange things, like having Marine Le Pen to talk at Oxford is like having her in your living room. And I don't want to have Marine Le Pen in my living room. Well, nor do I. But the idea that the whole campus of the university is like a living room, and therefore has to be a safe space in that sense, is so extraordinary. My view is, wherever you can, if, for example, there's a concern about how transgender people are talked about, and I think there's a real concern about that, then the way to respond to that is by enabling more voices. So actually go out there and get someone to speak about the trans experience, not closing down voices. So everything that is about closing down and shutting people up we have to look at three times to say, is that really necessary? And usually it isn't. But there may be a lot more we can do about enabling voices. So for example, at Oxford, we had the Roads Must Fall movement, brilliant piece of student activism, absolutely spectacular. In my view, that opened up the debate, didn't close it down. Yes. Um, I was thinking about the, another sort of very basic structure for the for the uh, for your ability to, f to form views in the first place, which is your privacy, that you need to have some sort of privacy in order to think through all these things and try them out in, the, in a safe space within your family or within to your friends. Uh, that is ch being challenged now also by the internet and some of the superpowers as we've seen with the uh, NSA leakages by Edward Snowden. So what, what do you think of that? So the, the, the internet has certain absolutely sort of basis basic existential features. One is that it compresses time and space in an unprecedented way. So previously something was said or something was printed and it was there in Bergen, but it wasn't there in Berlin or London, and it was probably forgotten in 10 years' time. Now, something said in Bergen 20 years ago is still there in Bangalore today. So time and space have been compressed. So if you put a stupid photograph on your Facebook page and it somehow got out, it's there for all eternity, the eternal scarlet letter. Another existential feature of the internet is that it makes it much easier to make things public and much more difficult to keep things private. It's as simple as that. And privacy is not just something that has to be balanced against free speech. It's a precondition for free speech. Why was it so ghastly living in East Germany? Because you could never be sure the Stasi weren't listening. I mean, I remember this vividly. You know, friends of mine would write messages down on cigarette paper. I once saw someone actually swallow the message afterwards. Uh, they'd literally eaten their words. Down it went. <laughs> um, so it was about privacy. So if, we, if we're not sure that anything is private, that itself is massively inhibiting to free speech. Now, what Google and Facebook in particular know about you and me goes way beyond a Stasi general's wildest dreams. The Stasi was nothing compared to Facebook. So we have to have enormous confidence in the way they're using it. It becomes doubly dangerous 
when they are covertly sharing that information with the NSA and GCHQ and the American intelligence agencies. This is what I call in the book P squared, power squared. If you put together private superpower and public superpower, you get a quite terrifying, potentially totalitarian power. And that's why Snowden was so important, because he exposed not just all the stuff that NSA is gulping up, and not just all the stuff that Google is gulping up, but the way it's being put together. And that's absolutely terrifying. So that I think pushing back on that, I have a whole chapter about it, is actually essential for free speech. Yes, I think so too. I think we've reached a part of our debate where we bring in our Justin uh, uh, and Kari. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit from two different sides, and then we'll just continue the debate. And uh, you just remain here because you'll get the chance to ask questions uh, at the end of this again. Okay. Are you ready for the next little turn? Thank you. Uh, Kari, you are now going to try and tie together a little bit of, of your research with uh, uh, Timothy Garden Ash's principles for free speech. I'm curious to hear how, you, how you've done that. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Uh, I thought I'd try to, to kind of bring your perspectives back home um, uh, in the sense of asking the question of the status of free speech here in Norway based on our empirical research from Norway in those these past uh, four years. Um, and it's, it's like you said, uh, we are really within a, a country that is affluent, democratic, stable, um, with a relatively consensual political system and with a, with a strong uh, protection of free speech by law. So that is kind of the context that we're speaking about. So we've done a range of studies, both uh, quantitatively and uh, qualitatively. Um, and based on that, um, I thought I'd first say something very briefly about uh, how are we with this uh, ability to speak freely and openly mm. um, and about the robust civility that you're, you're asking for. So um, to start with, I think that one, on the one hand one might say that um, there is a strong support for the principle of free speech in Norway. Um, many people think that speech that is critical of religions should be allowed. 70% of the population would, would say that. Um, and uh, very few do not accept offensive speech, whether it is directed towards uh, Muslims, religion, immigrants, LHB, LHBT, um, even though the Muslims are a bit distinguished in this respect. But still, the main uh, attitude is that such offensive speech should be allowed. And the use of law as a sanction is, is really, those who would like that, it's, it's very marginal. And very few would deny newspapers to publish, to publish uh, offensive cartoons. So that, on the one hand, indicates um, a type of robust civility, civility that a willingness to, to, to enter into discussions and, and to, to allow for what offends the other, but what is still a, a strong opinion. Uh, on the other hand, we find a quite strong caution uh, about criticizing ethnic minorities. So when we ask the question in a survey, 45% uh, only would say that it should be allowed to criticize ethnic minorities in the Norwegian public sphere. Mm -hmm. um, there is also, even though very few would deny uh, newspapers the right to, to publish, publish cartoons, 
uh, almost half of the population would say that the newspapers should be cautious. And, and the main reason for that is that it's, it's unnecessary to offend. Um, and also, the, the question of violence enters into to how people argue about this. We also find, through many different questions, sort of an unease about the dynamics uh, of social media. Um, and, and what seems like a, a call for more formal sanctions uh, when people transgress boundaries, not in terms of sending people to jail or, or giving them a fine, but in terms of expelling them from the social medium. Um, and finally, on this other, other hand, on the other hand of free speech, uh, uh, we find uh, what seems to be a, um, a limited trust in the, the impartiality of edi edited media, um, which is really like very politically informed. So, so people on the two outer, on the outer sides of, uh, on, on the right wing and, and, and the left wing of the political spectrum, would tend to be uh, more skeptical. Which goes right to, to the question of, of how much people trust the infrastructure, our media infrastructure, to to, to uh, ensure uh, free speech. So that th those are just some small indices of, of the big picture. And then I thought I'd, I'd point out two particular challenges to free speech that we see in our, our studies. And the first is related to self-censorship, um, which really speaks to your first principle of mm. being able to speak freely. Um, there seems to be uh, a general fear of offending other people. So only 9% in, in our survey would say that they would be willing to utter a statement that was important to them um, if there was a fear of offending someone else. Um, and we also find type of same kind of reluctance in, in, uh, when we ask people specifically about cartoon debates. When we look at ethnic and religious minorities in particular, um, even though uh, their presence and their willingness to speak has increased strongly in the past few years, uh, there's still a reluctance, a reluctance related to the fear of, uh, or the, uh, uh, the curse of representativity, as we call it in, in our studies. So uh, the feeling of being reduced to uh, a particular type of minority makes many in the ethnic minority hold back on their opinion, it seems. And finally, there is the what might be called uh, the paradox of those who are negative to immigration or the immigration critics, um, who on the one hand seem to, to be more willing to speak out if, if there's a danger of being perceived as racist or to offend other people, but a reduced willingness to speak out uh, in the light of a danger of, of being harassed or um, being made, made, uh, made fun of. So this seems to be like a um, a parallel development where there's an increased offensiveness going along with an increasing vulnerability, mm. uh, which I think is really an interesting paradox so that has something, something to say about how this uh, debate takes place in the Norwegian context. With this leads me to the, the final or the second challenge that I'd like to raise, um, and it's got to do with the dynamics of political debates in social media. Um, and I think that there are, there are many problems, as, as you already discussed, relating to this. Um, one point is that um, overall there seems to be, uh, um, we seem to see politically segmented views on tolerance um, more broadly. 
So um, people coming from the right side of the political spectrum and, and with a negative view of immigration uh, look upon free speech rights in, in very different ways than those who come from the right side or, or who they're willing to attribute the rights to. So there's this politicized dimension that's underlying the whole, whole field. Um, looking at particular groups, uh, ethnic minorities uh, experience more hate speech than others in, in uh, social media public debate, uh, and they have a stronger tendency to withdraw after having experienced such uh, hate speech. We could talk more about levels afterwards, because, well, that's always a difficult question, right? But we have some, some measures for, for the level of, uh, of hate speech. Um, and then there is this paradox of immigration critics, I think, which is really worth not noticing, uh, which I think many would say are increasingly heard within the social media debate, but that do perhaps not see them, perceive themselves as recognized within that same debate. Um, and we see this very clearly in, in our qualitative studies. So it seems to me based on all this that we have a situation of, of polarization uh, within Norwegian public debate. Um, and the problem is perhaps both a problem of echo chambers, but also a problem of what we've termed trench warfare. Because we do find when we, when we ask people about who they discuss with, they often discuss with people with a different opinion, but people very rarely change their minds after having done so. So uh, even debates going across uh, the spectrum, and especially with this, this, this paradox that I mentioned uh, with the immigration critics might actually lead to an increased polarization. So these are a couple of challenges for free speech within, um, within this, this very kind of the high-end context of, of free speech uh, that we're sitting in that I wanted to throw into the debate, the further debate. Yeah. So free speech doesn't quite work. I mean, it, it should work, <laughs> and, and it doesn't quite work still. Uh, would you care to give us some reflections on, on what you've heard so far? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was great. Um, look, cartoons. Um, it's very interesting to me that you said 50% um, saying they should be cautious about publishing or not publish, and then the two different reasons. One, um, it's unnecessary to offend, i.e. respect. Mm -hmm. The other, you said rather cautiously, the question of violence, which one might say is fear. Mm -hmm. Now, I, as I describe in the book, launched a campaign immediately after the Charlie Hebdo murders to try and get a coordinated republication of some of the Charlie Hebdo cartoons on the inside pages of a lot of leading newspapers with a careful commentary trying to explain why we're doing this. And the reason was this. In normal circumstances, I would never have reprinted those cartoons. There's no reason why The Guardian or anyone else should print those cartoons. It's not our stuff, it's not our taste. The, duty, the right to offend doesn't mean the duty to offend. That's right. But in this case, people were trying to exercise what I call the assassin's veto. That is to say, they were saying, if you publish that, we will come and kill you. And in my view, this is one of the biggest threats to free speech in Europe today. And there is, as you rightly said, across Europe, particularly in Western Europe, a huge amount of self-censorship out of fear. Now what happened is, I, I talked to all these editors, and some of them said we've done it already, 
And um, um, some of them said, we're never going to do that. And some of them said, go away. <laughs> uh, in other words, that, the whole op operation was a complete failure because trying to get <laughs> newspapers to do a coordinated action is worse than herding cats. Um, but, but, but some of them who did start talking to me, particularly editors of American papers, said, um, um, we're not going to do these because they're horrible. They're punching down, was the phrase they used. They're punching down, so they're offensive to weak minorities. Oh, and by the way, some of our staff might get killed. And all I want is to keep those two arguments separate, right? The normal circumstances in which I and The Guardian would not republish these cartoons, there's no reason why we should. Let them stay out there in this, you know, extreme satirical magazine read by 60,000 people. But in the circumstances when people are trying to do what they tried to do to Salman Rushdie, did to Theo van Gogh, tried to do to Ayan Hirschi Ali, did to Kurt Westergaard, and, 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 then we all have to stand up and fight. Not just the state, but all of us, society and journalists, to face down the assassin's veto. Mm -hmm. So that's my view on that. That's interesting. We also asked uh, journalists the same questions, uh, and they ranked violence lower than the population. And, and, but, but what they put up high up there was the meaning and used value. And for me, well, it's kind of it's, it's difficult to acknowledge, or it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's something about what, what you can say and what you can't say, and what kinds of reasons you, you may give. Fear, fear, fear does not like to speak its name. No. And so you have to distinguish the with between the respect, which is actually respect, and the respect which is lined with fear. Now, to be fair, there is, a, there is a genuinely difficult issue here, which is it's fine for me to say that for myself mm -hmm. and to put them up on my Twitter feed, okay? If I'm the editor-in-chief of The Guardian or the BBC and I've got 20,000 employees scattered around the world, including in, in Muslim countries, I do have to think about the safety of my staff. So I mean, I think, of my staff. So I think one has to be fair about that. But even then, I, I, I think we have to be honest about it. If that's the reason you're doing it, then say that's the reason you're doing it, and then let's see what we can do to make that otherwise. And the compromise I propose in the book, after this total failure <laughs> of my <laughs> great initiative, is that everyone should do them online. Everyone should publish them online when there is a, a, a genuine news value, right? When there's a genuine public interest in publishing them. The beauty of this is um, that they're then what I call one click away. Uh, it's a one click away principle. So one of the basic ideas of free speech is it's not just a, a right of the speaker, it's also a right of you, the listener. So I must be free to say what I want or not, but you must be free to hear or see what you want or not. And one click away uh, enables the right of both the speaker and the listener because nobody who, who for some reason doesn't want to look at those cartoons has to. Nobody has to go there. So that removes that objection. And so that's what I would be pressing for now, a kind of norm that if something like that happens again, we do them online. With the one click away. The one click yes. away. Well, by definition, they're one click yes. away. Yes. Great. Thank you. Uh, Justan, you had some comments as well? Well, I have comments for a lot of things, but I was preparing for a 15-minute speech that I was um, uh, 
could uh, ask to do uh, an email. I, I would like to start with the last one, which is actually a compliment to you on your book, which is very impressive, but not least for your initiative online, the free speech uh, debate uh, site that I've looked through and, and tried to get an impression of. Because it seems to me that that is addressing the need for what Cass Sunstein would call general interest intermediaries, exactly. in a sense, online and internationally. Exactly. Because one thing is that I think maybe uh, I would have, I would have wished you could have written even more about in your book was is, is the role of institutions such as public service broadcasting and major quality newspapers, especially in a country like this where newspaper reading is has been traditionally very high. The need for these uh, sites where everyone gets together, leaves their filter bubbles and, and, and their uh, safe spaces. Uh, you know, the echo chamber is a safe space. Uh, and get out there together to, to meet and talk. Uh, actually, there was one incident that I discovered while preparing for this that I'd forgotten, which was when a, um, a Norwegian newspaper published uh, their own Muhammad uh, cartoon Okay. 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 <laughs> Hello. Hello. Um, in 2008, after a bomb attack on the Danish embassy in Islamabad, they, they, they published a, a cartoon, not a very good cartoon, but a cartoon showing a stereotypical Muslim act, uh, terrorist. And the, the Pakistani embassy in Norway protested vehemently, saying that the, publishing this drawing is a terrorist attack. And uh, that. Um, and he also complained to the foreign ministry of Norway about this, as if the government edits Norwegian newspapers. Uh, and uh, I think there's very, very much use for some places where you could meet Pakistani ambassadors and other people in need of uh, elementary information, plus, as you mentioned, all the impulses that I think are very interesting that point in the direction of freedom of speech in all the other cultures, that it's not, it, it is for the idea of free speech and human rights for that matter uh, came up in, in, in Europe for various historical reasons, but can be said to be universal at some level and in some sense that can draw on uh, related ideas and, and ways of thinking uh, across the globe, I think. And there are a couple of other points that I'd like to make, and, and that is first, we talk a lot about free speech and freedom of expression. Freedom of expression. <laughs> and uh, um, I'd like to point to the first of your ten principles, which is that you talk about the freedom to seek and impart. That is, that the links between freedom of expression and the freedom of information is highly important. And it's important in various ways. Uh, they are like uh, Siamese twins or two sides of the coin or whatever. And they can still be separated. In, in one particular case for the Supreme Court in the US, there was it's a case known as the, the FCC versus Red Line Broadcasting in 1969. The Supreme Court actually discussed what is the most important, the freedom of speech of this broadcaster, or is it the interest of the public in information freedom, meaning, and they defined it beautifully, I, that's when I started loving legal language when I read this for the first time. It includes the right of the public to receive suitable access to social, political, aesthetic, moral, and other ideas and experiences. 
which is crucial here. That, that is, they define it very broadly. And that means that talking about, in the, in the context of free speech and freedom of, uh, uh, of information, talking about freedom of information here emphasizes that this is not just about politics, it's not just about democratic governance, it's about the good life. It's about your everyday life, it's, it's the air you breathe in, it's the, the, the freedom to seek the music you like and discover new music that you never heard before. This is what the freedom of information is also about, and I think that's vital that we also include that in the conversation. And the, the, my last point will be about um, talking about cultures. Uh, I think we should talk less about cultures and more about countries, uh, even details <laughs> within countries. That is, the sweeping statements of how this or that civilization uh, relates to the freedom of speech, I think is problematic because there are always sweeping statements that tend to um, cover up the differences within these great areas, parts of the globe. And I, when, when I uh, once I've, I've, I've experienced you know, the differences even within the West, they are great between countries, at, for instance, elementary points such as drawing the distinction between what is public and what is private. I remember being in England and talking to a friend there, an academic colleague, about the practice in Norway, established, uh, I think, in the 1860s, that all tax records are available for every citizen, so you can check what your neighbor made and how much tax she or he paid and so on. And that is the case also in Sweden and in Finland, uh, and was in Denmark until 1860. This friend of mine said, if you publish that kind of thing, like Norwegian newspapers still do, actually, if you publish that in Britain, you'd be put, into, put in jail for publishing that. So that is considered very private information about financial matters. In also that, in Liechtenstein. Also, I'm, I, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. But the point is that I also, in the early 90s, went to a conference on tabloid journalism, and I bought this quality paper, The Guardian, took a, you know, an issue with me and read discreetly while other people were speaking. And I found this interesting article with pictures of a man, rich man, and a woman who seemed to be of somewhat lesser means, who was struggling over a large sum of money in a court. And both people were portrayed with photographs. You had their full names. And the description of the court case included you know, uh, descriptions of their preferred sexual practices. They'd had an extramarital affair. And stuff like, you know, their preference for toe-sucking was included. <laughs> this is a quality newspaper, so what do you expect? They must be precise. And it included their street, the streets, oh, the name of the streets that, where these people lived. And I said, you know, Norway, that would never happen. If, if so, that would be condemned by the, you know, press ethics uh, council, and they would be probably put in jail or at least have to pay some kind of fine. Uh, I mean, you can... But with two so closely related countries as the UK and England can have so different opinions on where to draw the line between what is public, what is publishable, and what is not publishable, then you, you, know, you imagine that the, the, this is not just a, a question of distinctions between civilizations, cultures, religions. It's down to quite specific historical circumstances that might have, may have affected uh, the way things operate. No, absolutely. May I respond on... Absolutely. There was a series of very interesting points. I mean, of course, the, 
tabloid editor's definition of the public interest, as you well know, is what interests the public yes. and therefore sells more newspapers. But this was so the Guardian, though. This was, well, I mean, what can I say? Uh, um, um, but, I mean, there's a former cabinet minister, long since gone, David Mellor, and everybody knows uh, that he made um, passionate love to a certain young lady wearing a Chelsea strip. I mean, everybody in Britain knows this fact. It's, it, it's, uh, but more seriously, I mean, let me take a, a, a series of quick points on that because they're very interesting ways. First of all, Pakistan is an incredibly interesting example of the dangers of the assassin's veto because it's the state as well as individuals. So in the case of the Innocence of Muslims video, the president of Pakistan demanded that America take it down and then, a, a, I tell the story in the book, a cabinet minister of his personally offered a $100,000 reward for anyone who killed the makers of the film. So it's a kind of public-private partnership uh, to enforce the assassin's veto. Um, on, on what we can learn from other cultures, um, I mean, you know, we've already touched on this. There are two key questions about free speech. How free should speech be? and how should free speech be? How free should speech be is a law question, how should free speech is a question to us. And the Buddhist philosophy and thinking about right speech is incredibly interesting in that connection. I think we should have more of it taught in our schools because it's a whole other way of thinking about speech which has nothing to do with what is banned by law but with how we should be. So I think that's very interesting. Freedom of information um, is, so one of the questions for us is in how do we find the arguments for free speech that are compelling to people in Africa or in the developing world, in much poorer countries? If I don't have enough to eat, what, what's free speech to me? And there, freedom of information is absolutely key. Because if you say not, you must be free to express your philosophy, but wouldn't you like to know where the money goes? The money that was paid in taxes, the money that went to their government, then people get really interested. Specific example. I, I met recently a team in Nigeria who've developed a fantastic um, smartphone app. It takes the Nigerian central budget, breaks it down line by line, to the level of uh, a school is meant to be built here or a hospital is meant to be built there by 2019, by the mayor. Here is the name of the mayor. Here's his telephone number. I'm in favor of it in this case. And he's got $300,000 for it. Um, why? And then it gives a photograph of where the school is supposed to be. Of course, nothing has happened because he's bought a Mercedes with the $300,000. <laughs> And it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, there's freedom of information in action. And then they go off and say to the mayor, so why haven't we got the school? So, and, and when you make the argument less from freedom of expression, which is in some sense a luxury, we might say, or they might say, but from freedom of information, that has fantastic traction. So I, I think that's a great point. The last thing is about the media, and I hope maybe we can have a bit of conversation about this, because I think what you said about public service broadcasting, uh, major newspapers, universities, definitely, is incredibly important. In a world which, in a fragmented commercial media landscape where everybody is fighting for survival, 
because the internet has robbed all our newspapers of their business model mm. and therefore they're going to be shrieking each, each other and printing the photographs you mentioned public service broadcasting foundation supported media universities are incredibly important because we're the people who are preserving the public square but, but th does our media do that now? I mean we have this so sort of uh, an infrastructure that that's, uh, that you treat uh, very nicely in your book. You call them the, the big cats, the the, the the social media corporations that are really making out the basis for much of what is our infrastructure for real free speech these days. And they are edited in a quite different way because they're, I mean, they claim they're not edited at all, right? They're just neutral platforms allowing everyone to speak. And then they are editing them because they will... Uh, as we saw previously this fall, take down Nick Oot's uh, famous photograph from, from the Vietnam War uh, of the, 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 the Napalm girl. Uh, and, and so they will be taking down too much. Uh, and then as you have a number of cases now in Germany where uh, German hate speech laws prevent certain things from being said even on Facebook, and they're not taking those down, so they're taking down too little. Uh, de depending on where you see it from. What, what appears from this is that uh, different from edited media, uh, working within uh, lawful nation states, you have little insight in what rules are practiced for their additions uh, or censorship. Uh, you have little insight in, in how they're practiced, who sits there to review what's beyond this, this line or, or, or the other. Uh, and you have little insight into how you may appeal decisions that you disagree with. Uh, and this is, when this takes over certain, uh, certain public, public spheres as sort of the, the main media for, for a large number of groups, uh, how do you cope with that? Do we have sort of the edited media or uh, public broadcaster media to, to counter that? So, I, I, I think if you have good public service broadcasting, as you do and we do in Britain, hang on to it for dear life. <laughs> hang on to it for dear life and make sure it has enough money and enough independence because that has to be part of the mix. But, you know, 30, 40, 50% of people's news is coming from Facebook news feed and so what you describe is just an absolutely huge issue. I, for this project, I speak a lot to people at Facebook and Google and Twitter and we have to be fair to them in this sense. You know, it's as if... Liechtenstein had become a superpower in two years. I mean, they've grown at incredible speed. Now 1.9 billion users of Facebook. And they're good liberal people, but they're struggling with the power they have. Um, and, and these, what you call they deciding, is of course, as in the case of the picture of the naked little girl, uh, algorithms. They're automated decisions being made. Now, behind those algorithms are human beings who write the algorithms, but nonetheless, they're automated decisions which affect tens of millions of pieces of content, right? I think we have to get into a conversation, a kind of robust but civil <laughs> conversation with the private superpowers, which starts from the following premise which they have to accept. We now have a privately owned public sphere. There's an acronym for it, POPs, privately owned public spaces, POPs. You, Facebook, are providing the public square, not just for one country, but for much of the world. Therefore, you have a public responsibility. 
I'm not talking about my pictures of my pet cats, who I share with my two 27 friends, right? That's, <laughs> that's fine, that's, that's fine. I'm talking about Facebook news feed, which potentially could swing an election. Because if their news feed really skewed the news in one direction or another, it could swing it to Trump or swing it to Clinton. And you have to face up to the fact that you have this public responsibility. Let's sit down and work out together what we're going to do about it. Okay. Now, I would favor that approach over the German approach. And I've just been in Germany. I had a discussion with Martin Schulz on this subject. The German approach is there are these horrifying American giants, these monsters, these octopi. Uh, they're very big and they're very bad, and they're American, which makes it worse. <laughs> we virtuous rule of law Germans are going to come in with the German state and the German courts and the European Court of Justice and make sure they behave properly. Yes, and, and abide by the right to be forgotten, which, by the way, I think is a terribly bad idea. I'm very opposed to the right, uh, to, the right to be forgotten for reasons I can explain. Now, that's very confrontational. Mm -hmm. And at most, what it will get is Facebook to take the stuff down uh, where it's localized, or Google to take the stuff where it's localized in Germany. But with one or two clicks, you can get to the stuff everywhere else. So it doesn't actually address a larger problem. So I think we have to have a sort of robust engagement with the private superpowers and start that conversation. Like the Council of Europe, and I think the EU now has on certain issues with Facebook and Twitter and oh, Google. Yeah, and just quickly on that, and this is where, and it's very important to say this, particularly in Britain at the moment, the EU is really important. Uh, so I've, I've talked to the people right at the top of Google, including Eric Schmidt, and when they look at Europe, they see the biggest, richest single market in the world. That's what they see. And they have a number of issues with Europe, hate speech, privacy, right to be forgotten according to the ECJ, uh, counter-terrorism, and competition. And what they're really afraid of is antitrust, is the EU going after them, uh, trying to make them less monopolistic, which they are, right? So they're going to make really nice on the other issues, and I'm convinced that's what they're doing, in order for Europe not to go after them on, on on, on competition policy. And that's very good if we're going after them on the right issues, but not so good if we're not. So use the commercial logic against them, sort of. Well, I mean, so who, are the, who is Google afraid of? Almost nobody. I mean, are they afraid? <laughs> no, seriously. Look at the world. You know, their cash piles are larger than most countries, you know, GDP or certainly national budgets. I mean, these are, they don't pay tax anywhere because you can somehow move it around so you know, much of the time. So, so the world, and, and they've got very well into the entrails of the lobbying universe in Washington, lobbying Congress. They're not really afraid of US government anymore. They're right inside it. But they're afraid of the EU, and of course they're afraid of China. Mm. So I think you have to take that power, the power of what I call the big dogs against the big cats, and use it, but use it in the right way. Work out what you want to use it for. Who's that? I once organized a seminar where uh, a, a, I think a British, law, a British lawyer with a Norwegian sounding name, I've forgotten it, he speaks perfect dialect from Hallingdal, uh, but he was introduced by this uh, senior specialist on, uh, on intellectual property rights 
as the man who almost single-handedly brought down Microsoft. Mm. And uh, my, the, my point would be that it's the EU that can do stuff like that. It was a European process that was initiated by EU, uh, the EU, some, some office or other. And that is something which might lead to a not just the let's talk to these people kind of approach. At some point, maybe a line has to be drawn or some confrontation might take place over, for instance, the issue of, of, of taxes. Uh, and, 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 and some form of regulation of this private power. It's not an issue just of, 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 of having a, a robust and civil conversation. I, I At some point, yeah. one might have to take some political initiatives and regulate this business properly. And the EU is the only organization I see that can be able to do something like that. That's one of the major arguments for uh, supporting but, but, I mean, uh, speak softly and carry a big stick, I would yes. say. In yeah. other words, just shouting at, 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 uh, shouting at, uh, at Mountain View from Berlin is not very productive. It's the opposite of what German Ostpolitik always said. German Ostpolitik said, don't shout at Russia from Washington. Have a robust, constructive engagement. I'm absolutely, the big stick has to be there in the background. But then use it for the right purpose, so that, for example... I would use it like hell to defend our privacy, properly understood. Right to be forgotten is a deeply problematic concept. I mean, in Europe since 1945, we've spent the last 17 years saying, never forget, always remember the important things. Even if the Auschwitz guard is 96, you still prosecute him. And suddenly Germany and Europe turns around and says, right to be forgotten? I think that's misconstrued. And, and here we have a European problem, if I can, you allow me still to speak as a European, um, which is, as you very well know, in Norway, that the Europe of economic muscle and the Europe of civil and political liberties and human rights are somewhat divorced. One is the EU, the other is the Council of Europe and the OSCE. So all the great work on free speech and human rights is done in the Council of Europe and OSCE, but the muscle is in the EU. So I think for Europe, it's a challenge to combine those two. Got it. Yes, I was going to, to ask you, you were saying um, we, are, we have to do, or we're going yeah. to, yeah. So, so the question is really, who is the we here in a way, right? So it's the European Union with its divisions and its, its institutions, right? Uh, but it's also the citizens, right? And the civil society and, and well, yeah, I'd, I'd like you well, to bring in that perspective as well as, as you do in your book, because it seemed to, to put a lot of faith in the citizen, uh, well, if, I, if I read you right. So, some of you won't know the metaphor that goes through the book. So the, the, the big dogs are the states, India, China, Russia, even Germany. Um, the big cats are the private superpowers, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and, and you know, the Chinese giants and others. And where are the mice, right? <laughs> where are all the mice? And the question is, what can we little mice do against these big dogs and big cats who, who, who either are fighting it out or having sort of furtive couplings, like the ones Edward Snowden <laughs> discovered, which are in a way the most worrying when they actually get together? My answer is the Internet does give us extraordinary new opportunities for networking, for being network citizens. And the big cats, actually more than the big dogs, are frightened of network citizens because the one thing they're terrified of is not Washington. It's losing their users because without us, 
they are nothing. They don't exist. Their whole business model is based on having a lot of us and selling us to advertisers, right? So the evidence is that when you get a significant body of network citizens and they start getting publicity, start getting echoed in the media, uh, actually the companies react quite quickly. Little example in the book, Facebook Beacon, you'll remember that. Facebook introduced a new product which was pretty outrageous. It, it, it ensured that anything you had bought that they had known about would immediately be shown to all your Facebook friends. And so the, the famous case was a guy who bought a lovely white gold ring and then got an indignant message from his wife saying, who the fuck is this <laughs> ring for? <laughs> and actually, it was a wedding anniversary present for her this extremely nice and luxurious and loyal American husband. <laughs> but, you know, he, his cover had been blown by Facebook. And people got so indignant about it, and um, moveon.org uh, got into the act and started a campaign on Facebook, against Facebook, and they closed it down within months. So that gives, gives hope that when you get enough people actually acting together, that, you know, they will react. That's kind of the fascinating thing when you saw the, the, the Napalm Girl case coming up too because most of the counter speech actually happened on Facebook, against Facebook, which combined with, uh, with uh, some, some letters from, from newspaper editors and so forth actually moved Facebook then to, to say we were, we were wrong. But here's the interesting thing. That's a great case. It's a combination of network netizens and some established powers. Mm. So he was a well-known Norwegian journalist, right? Who, who he was the editor of one of our papers, so and, he and he was the prime minister, he, but uh, she, uh, she, she did it on Facebook. And, and, and yes, but, she, but it was a prime minister, yes. mm -hmm. and they sure as hell sat up in you know, wherever they took the call or the message because it was a prime minister and an editor of, of Norway. So that it's rather like, you know, I, I'll jump slightly, but you'll see the point. People talked about the Arab Spring as a kind of phenomenon of Facebook and social media. It wasn't. It was a phenomenon of social media combined with Al Jazeera, combined with people having the old-fashioned courage to go and put their bodies at risk on Tahrir Square. Mm -hmm. And you always have to have some combination of new media and, and old established powers, and then, and then they really take notice. Mm -hmm. The flip side of this is when, when uh, established leaders start using social media in a more robust than civilized way for their communication. So when, say, some of our ministers are using their Facebook accounts to, uh, to say things that are perhaps robust but not very civilized, uh, it gets a lot of spread. And it speaks right into that sort of already polarizing political landscape. Yeah. I was interested in, in, in what I think you said about the trench. Who was talking about the trench warfare? I think you were yeah. very good party. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's right, that's right the trench warfare. I, I, I think, you know, I think politicians get called out on that stuff fairly quickly. It's mm -hmm. interesting. I, I think the more dangerous effect, and, and both Donald Trump and Brexit are great examples of this, is an immensely powerful echo chamber effect, which really does take us to the post-fact society, which I think we need to talk about. I know mm. it's become a cliche. I don't say post-truth, by the way, because I think that's a bridge too far. 
that even Mr. Holberg would think that was a bridge too far. <laughs> it somehow implies there was a golden age when we were all had truth coming to us from the BBC or, <laughs> you know, Doug Bloodett or whatever it was. No, no, I think not. But facts we did have. And, and, and there are amazing examples of this. So the claim of the Brexiteers on their battle bus, their red battle bus, we pay £350 million a week to Brussels and we can spend it on the NHS, which was a straight lie, literally a big lie. It was about four metres tall on the side <laughs> of the bus. You know, masses of people believe this because the mechanism of the big lie, as we know from histories of propaganda, is repetition. And the point about social media and the echo chambers is you can get the repetition effect. Another quick example, which I think is amazing, the Bertha story in the United States, the claim that Barack Obama was not born in the United States. Donald Trump was pushing this for a long time. Obama published his birth certificate. You, we might think that's a fairly incontrovertible piece of counter-evidence. Donald Trump tweets the following. You know how he always says, a lot of people think, right? A lot of people feel that it wasn't a proper certificate. Now, that's a perfect epitome of the post-fact society. I may say this jacket is blue, but I feel that it's red, right? It's a lot of people feel. And that, I think, is a bigger danger of, of the magnifying effect of social media. So not post-truth, but post-trust, perhaps. Yes. Yes. You start? I think the, the problem with ministers, as we now have, in Norway, using the social media to communicate directly. There's one minister, the Minister of Integ uh, Integration and Immigration, mm -hmm. who has a Facebook site with 100,000 followers mm -hmm. that makes the spread of, of whatever's posted there larger than the spread of any existing newspaper, mm -hmm. for instance. Uh, and, and that is not a threat against free speech uh, in, any, in any way. She would probably say with... with, with um, and, and it's justified to say that this is my way of expressing myself without the interference of journalists and experts and elites of all kinds. And, and so you cannot attack it on free speech grounds. The problem, I think, is more related to the freedom of information because it is probably, uh, it probably means that the information she provides to her followers is not sort of filtered or countered in any way by critical questions or by alternative facts or exactly. anything like that. So it's, that just shows the relevance and the importance of this freedom of information point that I tried to make. That is actually something which is uh, <laughs> very much worth focusing on and is very understandable for people. One of the reasons why I wanted to mention this is when, when looking at your book I was reminded of this incident in 1969 when I came from an anti-Stalinist socialist youth camp of very few people to my uncle's farm in the east of the country where this guy from Czechoslovakia was working that summer. He would had been allowed to work there. And after a long hot day we were swimming naked in the river there and he stopped as he was drying himself with a towel and I asked what he was thinking about and he said it's just so fantastic to be here and be able to breathe freely mm. and think whatever I want and say whatever I want. And I think it was 
this general feeling of the freedom of information as being about the air in which you breathe. And that is, you, you need it. Yeah, you need I, to talk about this. I mean, I think this is a great point. Can I just add one thing to that? Because it, it's, it's about freedom of information, but it's also about uh, defending the public sphere, isn't it? Yeah. So the but image I start right. my chapter on journalism with is the Pnyx in ancient Athens, where people would walk for hours so that all the citizens of ancient Athens could gather in one place and then anyone could speak and make their argument and exchange their arguments as we're doing here and then when they'd heard all points of view they made up their minds and they made and that's the sort of the ideal picture the simplest of what we want you know journalism for democracy now the challenge we face now is this I, I don't think you can go after that person on sort of classic free speech grounds uh, we over here can establish the facts until we're blue in the face mm -hmm. and uh, talk among ourselves and have experts. The ch journalistic challenge is how do we ensure that those facts get to those readers and those mm -hmm. voters in ways that actually reach them. And, and you can't force them. You can't force anyone to you know, read The Guardian or you know, look at a fact-check website. So that there's an actual a, a challenge for the journalist's craft about how you present these facts and, and true evidence in ways that reach the voters who are now going to the populace. It's possibly a job for all of us then in, in Facebook and, and elsewhere mm -hmm. to link to those kinds of pages when encountering that kinds of post-fact speech, I guess. Just then? This is uh, the point I wanted to make about this is uh, I wanted to ask you, Kari, and but also you, uh, on the practices of Facebook. I am myself very active on Facebook, and I love it for many reasons. But one of the reasons is that I actually have communicated with people with very different opinions, right. uh, who are also often very well informed, and they bring forth uh, arguments and, and links to you know, texts, newspaper articles, or whatever that I was not aware of. So I just wonder, because I've also got friends in other countries, the UK, one of them, uh, and my impression is that in the US and in the UK, these uh, Facebook accounts are much more mono, uh, what do you say, mono opinion, mono opinionated. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they, they tend to, to be groups of people thinking alike, yeah. more or less of the same political and cultural orientation with the same kind of academic background. Many of my friends' accounts, even though they are, you know, journalists or professors or whatever, all of them or most of them, they are more diverse. So here's a quick demand for us, network mice: um, give us access to Facebook's data, mm -hmm. because we cannot answer that question. Because the only people who have the data is Facebook's data science team, and as you know very well. They keep producing these studies who say, no, 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 no echo chamber effect. We've looked at, you know, 100 million <laughs> accounts and 30% uh, is contradictory and so on. But we don't know what the sampling techniques were, which countries they were taken and so forth. So I think that, you know, the answer is we don't know and we actually need to know. Got it. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right about that. And that we, you would need confident analysis and then, and then, yeah, really the big data analysis to, to yeah. really get this right. 
Uh, but it is still a fact, just to throw in a ray of light into, the, into this, <laughs> that when we ask people uh, whether they discuss on social media with people that are differently minded, in Norway at least, most people do. And many say that they, they learn something, even though few change their minds. So, so there is this. When, well, of course, it's not very, uh, well, people would perhaps be reluctant to say that they only discuss with like-minded. So this is, well, in a way, a shaky measure, but, but still. I, I, and I think there is something contextual to this, and perhaps national contextual. So, um, and I, yeah, and I just wanted to throw in another area of light as well uh, concerning this, this um, digitalization and the conditions of journalism. Because I think if, if the mice are doing their job, um, uh, there is the idea of facts checking and of, of being confronted with. And when we ask journalists in Norway how they look upon the effects of digitalization uh, a couple of years back, they were very, like, they, they saw these two sides of it. They said, on the one, on the one hand, click hysteria. We're running after uh, what people want, and, and everything is just going too fast. But on the other hand, um, the perspective that they were always being checked by the public. The public was there and they could reach information more easily. But yeah. it depends on the, on the media system, of course, and, and the conditions, uh, the structural conditions well, for I, the media. I, I yeah. think it shows that media systems are fantastically important and that mm -hmm. every element of pluralism or public sphere. One, one, you're right. One good thing about, um, for example, the American elections is that fact-checking has become a, just an indispensable part of, of journalism and automatically. I mean, Donald Trump has been very good for fact-checking. Mm. <laughs> I just wanted to mention that uh, a professor at the University of Bergen has done uh, some kind of grant study of Facebook use in Europe and will present in January his research which he says uh, indicates that there are no echo chambers uh, or there is not, it's not as strong as you suspect or something like that and he's thinking in terms of you know, within a, a European, an imagined European public sphere across countries and so on. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that presentation at the conference you're invited to as well. I was just going to say, for what it's worth, the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford comes to a similar conclusion looking at Britain, that it's not actually true that it's such an echo chamber effect, that in total people get more diverse sources of news than they would when they, you know, had only read the Daily Telegraph. Mm. Well, I wanted to add just that the, the one result of uh, traditional mass communication result, which is of all the reading lists of all social sciences, is the one about the two-step flow of information mm. with opinion leaders and so on. Mm. And, the, and it's on all those reading lists because it indicates that we do not live in actually in a mass society where atomized individuals are easily swayed by this or that demagogue. We live in societies where we have neighbors and colleagues and we talk to them. And I think that's the basic one of the basic reasons why the echo chamber uh, effect, at least in, function, <laughs> in functioning societies, communities, will never be perfect because there will be people talking to each other. And some of these people may have heard of other sources of information and so on. At least that would be um, there's a ray of light in that. So there's, there's that idea. There's hope in the offline world. People talking to <laughs> people actually talk. Yes. You know? The first public sphere is two people talking to each other. So. We should I have we right. should have some more mice talking. Uh, are there any okay. mice in the audience <laughs> yes. who wants to uh, to pose a question? There's one right there. Hello. Uh, 
Hello, my name is Hilde Sonvik, and uh, I want to bring in an aspect that has not been touched upon, which is um, <clears throat> connected to, to the techniques these days, because what we are actually seeing is that we are moving away from a pull society where we pull out information to a push society where information is pushed upon you uh, in your feed. And perhaps it's not very easy to talk about um, echo chambers here, However, the, the election in the uh, US uh, see, uh, showed us really that the push, the push element here is so strong. And that is something I, as a publisher, uh, I'm really, really concerned about what is happening actually when you are not longer pulling information, but it's pushed to you. And some of it, a significant proportion of what's being pushed to you is fake news, too, of course, as we know, because they're, they're going after quantity. I mean, it comes back to what we've already been talking about, doesn't it? What, what's sometimes called algorithmic accountability, or, or, or even ethical algorithms. That is to say, it, it, you know, in a curious way, I th the way I think about our scrutiny of the private superpowers of Facebook or Twitter is rather like thinking about the, the accountability of intelligence agencies, right? We, we all know that you can't be told the actual name of the actual source in, you know, in Lahore who gave you that story because then the guy will get killed. But we can, they, they can be, someone said they can be translucent, right? They can give you a bigger sense of how they're doing it. And in an odd way, I think the same applies to the algorithmic accountability of Facebook or Google or Twitter. Right? Obviously, they can't tell us exactly how they do it because that's commercially sensitive. And it would also be gamed, which is important to say that. It would be gamed, it'd be gamed by pornographers, it would be gamed by terrorists. On the other hand, they can't just hide behind the sort of blanket notion of, of uh, no intermediary liability and say, oh, no, it's absolutely nothing to do with us. You know? so, we have to find some place where, where, and you know, they have to do more about it. You'll stand, did you have a short comment? Yeah, just a short comment, which is about pushing. Uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the Facebook has, you know, decided to uh, prioritize uh, individual posts in people's newsfeed uh, on, uh, you know, instead of institutional uh, uh, walls or whatever, so that, for instance, Norwegian newspapers will have lower priority with their pages on Facebook than whatever Alina or, or some of us would, would post. And furthermore, the criterion for being uh, lifted in the newsfeed, prioritized in the newsfeed, is that you get, I think it was five likes before five minutes has passed. That means also that you're lifted. So uh, I think looking into those principles is what we, you know, could do when we get Zuckerberg uh, at a table like this and discuss. Well, I thought uh, you were suggesting policy. manipulating it so that we could just arrange for someone clicking like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can do it. Well, yeah, but you well, can do that kind of thing, of course. And, and I'm sure yes, people do that. Yeah. But what, it, what this means is that the strategy of the Norwegian press of putting a lot of emphasis on the presence, their presence on Facebook has been problematic. So that the major newspaper in Norway, Aftenposten in Oslo, this summer had this spread saying, these are the six people on Facebook you need to follow if you want to follow the important social and political debates. Yeah, I know, yeah, 
Yeah. Not, not our paper. Could we possibly hope for, for sort of the, the same learning curve with the edited media as with the, uh, the new social media? Is that they are works of progress? We shouldn't demand too much of them. They need to learn as they go and learn from their mistakes, possibly, what, what, as, what? as our papers have done, outsourcing all their commentary fields to Facebook and so on. Yeah, but the difference is, you know, for several hundred years, journalists thought of themselves as being journalists, and Facebook isn't even acknowledging that it is a news platform. It hasn't even got to that point. Also, I mean, it would be wonderful to have Mark Zuckerberg here. Let's yeah. imagine him here for a moment. But the, the, the thing is, you know, he is still stunningly naive on many issues and, and, and ill-informed, frankly. I mean, yes. Maybe he only reads Facebook. But, um, uh, um, and on, for example, the subject of fake, fake news, he said, um, he, he did a post on Facebook about this in which he said, amongst other things, um, finding the, open quotes, truth is very complicated, <laughs> which is pretty, you know, what is truth, suggesting Zuckerberg. Um, but to a terrifying degree, these are absolute monarchies. These companies are absolute monarchies. There's no democracy, there's no accountability, there's no oversight. And what this, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, this one person, actually thinks and what his priorities are, is you know, as important as what the, the, the you know, czar of all the Russians thought. And so that's, that's a particular problem of the private superpowers, so the characters at the top. So one reason Google has been much better on free speech is that one of the founders was called Sergei Brin, who is the son of Russian emigres, emigres from the Soviet Union. So he really cares about free speech. And I would say if they hadn't had the son of Refuseniks, uh, at the top of Google, they might still be in China. Huh. That's good. But yes. you were thinking about the fact that the media would be in a learning process as well, perhaps? Well, well I, I would hope yeah, so. Because, because that's an interesting question too, I think, and, and which are the conditions for the media to learn now in viable ways in, in a situation where they're very pressured on, on business models and on, on, on the threat of digitalization. And uh, yeah, so I guess... Well, I don't have an answer to this, but I guess in our Norwegian context, at least, there's, there's the role of, of active uh, public policy uh, in, in order to... It's difficult to be innovative and learning organizations in a situation of, of high pressure, I guess, yeah. even though we might... Yes, hope. Mm. Well, yeah. keeps our hopes up. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's one question up there to the left, I think. Oh, you got it. Sorry. Thank you very much for the, this enlightened discussion. My name is Sebastian von Hofacker. I'm a German physician. I'm uh, a true mouse uh, in terms of uh, my understanding for journalism and the connections uh, to society. My, um, I would li I'd like to ask two questions. You mentioned uh, the connection between uh, the NS NSA and Google and then the state. I th would like you to expand a little bit on, about that and how we should fight it. You, you said there was something we should fight together. I wonder how we should do that. And the other one is, um, I read out of your statements um, a quite of a positivism in terms of your understanding how potent um, democracy is in controlling all this we are discussing today. Um, I, 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 got a, I, I received a nice Facebook post um, uh, referring to a commentator in, in, an, in an American Baltimore-based Baltimore uh, newspaper in 1920, and he, he says, and I make a brief, um, as democracy is per perfected, 
um, we will, and now I, I, I'm jumping, we will see the downright moron in the White House. <laughs> and that is what, what we are, you're alluding to. Today, democracy has, has, with all the media possibilities, led us to having a person in the White House that is actually having the, the, the both, the, both houses now behind him. And um, I wonder how this person will be, what the chances of him um, are changing the system, the system that we think will control him um, um, uh, in terms of, in, in, in his own direction. Let me draw the parallel to Hitler. He was also democ democratically elected um, and, uh, and people, and then the sociological moment. We, we, you haven't discussed it. Frustrated people. What is that? What power do they have today? Are they controlled or is it? No. Well, there's a lot of questions. Thank you. Well, there, 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 there is a lot on there. So, so can I park the first question just to say one of the things you can do is to have Edward Snowden come to Norway to receive his prize. I think that would be a very good thing. Did you hear that, Arno Solberg? Uh, yeah, because, I mean, you know, I, I do think that he's done us all a great public service. And, uh, you know, I think that given the power of, 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 of the agencies of the security state, you have to have the whistleblower as a long stop, as a last resort. And, and I think we should honor him for that. Now, the democracy one is a much bigger one. I mean, the first thing to say is... Um, we are in a crisis of capitalism and a crisis of democracy. We had that in the 1920s and 1930s, and we're in such a moment again. I think we have to recognize that. But the form it comes in is slightly different. It's a form is populism. And populism is there is no higher authority than the people. The people trump. The verb acquires a new meaning. <laughs> all other sources of authority. Forget the Constitutional Court or the Supreme Court or the Parliament in the case of Brexit or whatever it The people have spoken, and the people have spoken through me. Trump, that's a crucial line. It's, I am your voice. And that's like the Brexiteers, it's like the Kaczynskis, wherever you look, that's a populist move. And of course, the people turn out only to be half the people. There's always the others, the Mexicans or the Muslims or the East Europeans. Um, and, and, and the question for this panel is, how does the media play in that? What do one do in media to counter that kind of populism? And I think it comes back to what we were saying a moment ago, which is not just how do you get the facts and the reality, but how do you get the, it to the people who are voting for Trump or who are voting for Brexit? And th that, that's a challenge. It's a practical challenge, not a theoretical one. Um, and, you know, nobody has an immediate ready answer, but that's where you have to look, I think. Was that just a quick note? It was actually not the, half the people that voted for Trump. It was something like 25%. Well, because 46% or something stayed at home. So it's half the people, out of the half the people, there was half, which means 25%, yeah. which is worth thinking about when you... Uh, consider the degree of truth in Trump saying he's representing the people. He's talking about 25%. Absolutely. And at the most. And it was an imagined people. Yeah. We, we should remember also, though, that uh, the, uh, the non-Trump, the uh, antidote, we could hope, 
uh, being Barack Obama. Neither wants to uh, pardon Edward Snowden. So there are all sorts of challenges even with the uh, non-populists on those issues. There's a question up there. Yeah. Um, I'd like to go back to the example that uh, Anina used of the, the iconic picture of uh, Kim Puk, uh, the Vietnamese girl running from the, the Nepal attack. Um, this was uh, a campaign which the, the newspaper Afton Post used, in which you say the, the Prime Minister also supported by repeating the picture on, the, on Facebook. Uh, ironically enough, both Afton Poston and the Conservative Party to the Prime Minister were avid supporters of the Vietnam War when it was actually uh, going on. Uh, but now we see that uh, in one week's time, the, the, the person who was most responsible for these atrocities in <laughs> Vietnam, Henry Kissinger, is being invited by the Nobel uh, uh, Institute and uh, University of Oslo to participate in a forum. This is a man who's responsible for, for crimes against humanity, who's been uh, responsible for, the, for not just the use of napalm, but also chemical and biological weapons, for carpet bombing of Cambodia and Laos, uh, instigating the in Indonesia's invasion of East Timor, a genocide which costs the lives of a third of the population, and also supporting and planning coups in Latin America, which uh, ended with several decades of vicious military dictators. And yet these self-same uh, newspapers, the Prime Minister, uh, are not reacting to this. There is a campaign to try and stop them, but uh, nobody seems to be interesting in, interested in, in giving it any, uh, any credence. So often we see that, that these forms of, of campaigns which, which are presented as champions of, of, of free speech end up as being really nothing more than, than hypocritical self-righteousness uh, of these so-called liberal uh, supporters of free speech. So, so you mean so they're hypocritical for not stopping his speech now? Why? Yeah, this is the argument, obviously, that they'll probably be using. Um, oh, okay. If for, I may say so, if, if, you, if you want to do Henry Kissinger a big favor, then disinvite him. He'd just love that. He'd be a <laughs> martyr for free speech, it would be great publicity for him. I think, I think it's absolutely right to have him here and then to criticize him, to address him to his face. I hope you can get a ticket uh, to address <laughs> no, him no, to his can't. face on it's these issues, closed, or at least to protest uh, outside. But I think that is the gen you know, that's the free speech answer to that, is not to disinvite them to no platform, Henry Kissinger, because um, that most experience suggests, most experience suggests only gives them you know, uh, like the trial of Gert Wilders in the Netherlands, for example, it just gave him oodles of free publicity. I don't, I don't think giving credence to a, to a war criminal is, is a very clever thing to do. Actually, we're okay, hoping that, that's that, a fair uh, point. I think we have one more question over at the right. To send him to the court in The Hague and have him tried for his Hi, uh, I have a question concerning the uh, strategy we use. You try and speak a little bit more into the mic. <laughs> yeah, thank we you. use to uh, work against hate speech in this country, because a lot of us are relying on newspapers and reading them, and also participating in the debate and the commentary section. 
And uh, recently, um, there has been many newspapers who have published uh, op-eds on their opinions on uh, public issues, which seems to align with a lot of the uh, socialist and left-wing ideologies. And so many right-wing supporters feel excluded from the debate, and so they're using the commentary section more as a space where they can um, uh, um, exhibit their uh, free speech rights but not to participate in the debates because they're more concerned with getting their opinions across rather than listening to others because usually the uh, argument that is used is that the uh, big newspapers in Norway are um, being biased and uh, my question is I want well I'd, I'd like to see there be a uh, platform where both polarizing opinions can meet and discuss together and not feel excluded by the others and feel like the public opinion is generally supporting um, a left-wing uh, ideology or a left-wing argument is there a realistic way that we could create a mutual platform where one side doesn't feel excluded by the others because one side is more politically correct than the other? That is my question. <laughs> no way, sir. I, have, I think you should try. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's, it's not very difficult in itself to establish some kind of website for debates between the left and the right. and. Uh, and uh, you could try that, or you could try moving through Facebook, establish a, uh, you know, or you're saying a group on Facebook. There are many ways to do, go about this, and there's no need for you to wait for other people's initiatives here. You could do it now. This is one of the benefits of digital technology. You're free to do it right now yourself. Can I ask mm -hmm. a supplementary on that, if I may, just quickly before yeah. I beg your pardon, because you know so much about public service broadcasting. So, so in Britain, there's always a question, is the BBC actually doing that job, right? You know, mm. I mean, they have an awful lot of money from us, and it's a great tradition, but are they actually doing the job for our times, for 2016? Do you think Norwegian public service broadcasting is doing that job? To a considerable extent, I, I think, but then there are these complaints, of course, that it is the uh, Labour Party Broadcasting Corporation. Right. And... Uh, and so it's been co there's constant discussion about it, but still, I think that discussion is not least. I once studied this discussion over whether or not the American primetime uh, melodrama series uh, Dynasty should run on the NRK or not, and whether that you were for or against in that debate. The, the idea was that the NRK is ours. We pay for it, so we have a right to say something about it, and so I feel much of the same applies to actually this discussion, whether or not it's left or right, or, or whether it's uh, biased in this, or, in this or that way. It is some kind of ownership, feeling of ownership and, and a right to have an opinion on the NRK is basically an expression of how strong this institution is, is within the Norwegian society and the public sphere. If I may just quote you down, because I mean, you know, there is now, there's a huge problem which in, in the, in the mainstream media, quote-unquote, or the BBC, are seen as sort of liberal metropolitan. Mm -hmm. and now, BBC tries incredibly hard to be impartial and fair and does that, but is it liberal metropolitan? You bet it is. 
<laughs> How many really sympathetic reports did you get about the life of people in Leeds, mm -hmm. you know, in post-industrial cities of the north of England who voted for Brexit? So I think there is a, there's an important case to be made about, you know, the public service media having to raise their game particularly in reporting, not so much in debate, but actually in who they report and how they report it. The daily newscast is very important and is often a target of, of, of real, uh, you know, uh, warranted critique, I think. And it, it could be either in terms of regions and so on that mm. you get a coverage in, you know, play, the main newscast, you get a coverage of a burglary somewhere in the western part of Oslo, mm. which is fantastic news. You know, factories might burn over here without mm -hmm. you see anything about that. And uh, there's another case where, a you know, famous case where some, some immigration-related um, uh, reportage was, was shown where they obviously had overlooked elementary facts about this in a way that skewed the presentation. So these, are got, these debates are going on all the time, and I think that critique, constant critique is very important because it keeps these journalists on their toes. Got it. Uh, yes, uh, I just wanted to say I, I think you're, you're very right about the problem, the analysis, uh, and what I said initially really speaks to that, that this, this very different view from the two sides of the immigration debate, for instance, of, uh, of who is getting heard, who is accepted, um, and about the very politicized uh, and, and kind of polarized environment that we have. Um, and, and, and then I think um, it's a good thing to try to do something through civil society in a way. So establishing this platform would be like working with attitudes in another space. And we haven't talked much about civil society here today, but I think that's really, that's really crucial for overcoming uh, also in the offline world some of these cleavages. But then it doesn't really solve the media problem in a way. And media remains very important, I think, in our society. So what's up there on the, on the shared agenda matters. So you, you can't solve it through your platform. Uh, uh, you still have to work on, on the attitudes of the media like, like we talked about. But yeah, going in for both those sides, perhaps. I think it's time for us to uh, round up this. And I just want to thank you all, particularly you, obviously, uh, for bringing the world from Gutenberg to Zuckerberg to Norway <laughs> and the free speech debate. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.